You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Redemption. Um, good to see y'all on a spring break post time change Sunday morning. Um, so a couple weeks ago, I had the pleasure of going out to Waco to surf, right? So if you aren't in the world of surfing, you're like, what the heck are you doing surfing in Waco? That's a weird thing. In the surf world, it's like this really big deal because they're like, oh my gosh, we can surf in Waco. That's neither here nor there. My brother-in-law invited me to go out there, and so I find myself standing in Waco, Texas, like, go out down, down the dirt road, past the trailer park, turn left, and there's this giant, like, marvel of technology sitting in Waco, Texas. Um, and there, I, we, re- we met this guy there who worked for a large glucose meter company. It's not Dexcom, it's the other one, whatever that one is. So if you um, have diabetes, know someone with diabetes, like it's that machine that hooks up to your body and then like goes into an app and tells you all this magic biological stuff that's going on in your blood in real time, which is really cool. Uh, but this wave pool's proximity to Austin draws a lot of people who used to live in California but have now come to the promised land. And uh, that would be Austin, Texas, not Houston, um, apparently. And so, like, there's this big, like, tech culture that's building in Austin, and it's a lot of people from California. Well, a lot of people in California surf, and now they're in Austin, and they feel like, oh, my gosh, you can drive 45 minutes down the road and go surfing. And so, obviously, um, this guy is one of those people. My brother-in-law is also one of those people. And so, being two tech guys who are in Waco, Texas, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about biohacking. And so they begin having this conversation about biohacking and how these glucose meters have become this like really interesting tool that a lot of the people in the tech world in like Silicon Valley are using to try and biohack their way into living forever. Um, Okay, (laughs) so one of the things that they remarked at is as they were like just having this casual conversation about what happens to your blood sugar when you eat certain things is, And man, like drinking has this incredibly negative effect on your body, like almost immediately, right? And this shouldn't be news to us. If you lived at any point in time and went to any sort of public school, uh, dare to say no to drugs and alcohol and right, uh, drinking is, can be really bad for your health. Um, But even like one drink was shown to have like these really negative consequences on your like biological health. And so this is a sermon about why you shouldn't drink. No, just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> um, but the, the glucose meter guy who like is in the middle of this conversation is like, yeah, absolutely. But I've read these studies recently where they found that people who drink like moderately, right? We're not talking about like raging alcoholism here. But people who drink like moderately actually statistically live significantly longer lives. And so in spite of alcohol's negative effect on your biological health, there was something else going on that researchers still can't actually like scientifically say. And here's the data that proves this. But the the suggestion is it's because moderate drinkers tend to be more social, And that it's not the drinking that is actually causing them to live longer, but it is their willingness to be more sociable that is inviting them to live longer lives. Now, I don't know if that's actually true or not, but it was a fun story to start a sermon with, and so we did. It's also my excuse to tell you, hey, I went surfing in Waco, and that was weird. Um, But loneliness, like the, the... the lack of connection is actually considered an epidemic by many health experts. And some of these things are astounding. 
The effects of loneliness on our health. People who report being lonely are more likely to suffer from dementia, mental illness, heart disease, and strokes. An analysis from 2015 found that loneliness saw a 30% increase in the likelihood of mortality, regardless of your age, gender, or world region. And this did not vary according to whether this was uh, like perceived loneliness or like actual real loneliness. Like you live in a box and you have no contact with the outside world, or you feel like you live in a box and have no contact with the outside world, even though you have an annoying roommate or spouse, or right? (laughs) So in conclusion, the analysis found that the influence of both objective and subjective isolation or loneliness, the risk for mortality is comparable with other well-established risk factors for mortality. And the famous one that they compare it to is it is the same as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That being lonely can have the same biological effect on your body, on your physiology, as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, right? Not like one for one. You're not going to like die of lung cancer because you lived alone. But who is alone, right? Well, a third of the people in the U.S. report feeling regularly lonely, That's higher than obesity in the United States of America, and that's higher than diabetes. 61% of college students report being lonely post-pandemic. College students who are living on campus at a college in a dorm with other peers their own age, 61% report feeling lonely. Some argue that that rate is actually higher to 78%. In 2021, Americans reported fewer close relationships and friendships than ever before in the history of the time that we started asking these sorts of questions. Lori Santos, a cognitive scientist and psychology professor at Yale, says that loneliness has steadily been on the rise since the 70s. So we can't just blame like, ah, it's our iPhone, right? Or it's... I don't know, whatever else we might blame, Netflix or the pandemic, that this has been going on uh, for a very long time. And that is likely due to our increasing busyness, namely more time spent at work, alongside the rise in technology. And this technology that's intended to keep us connected has simultaneously made us more accessible to the workplace. It's, It's caused us to carry work around with us so that we're checking email instead of being present with our friends. And it's also given us the false promise of connectivity in place of personal relationships to the point where you go out to dinner and you sit and you look around and you will notice that a bunch of people are having dinner with one another and actually sitting and staring at their phones. And this last fact, the one about technology, um, these platforms that are like designed to uh, manipulate, maybe a strong word, maybe it's the perfect word, I don't know. These platforms that are designed to manipulate our uh, like biochemical response, are promise, promising us connection and actually leading us into isolation. And it's this last one that may help us understand how 61% of college students who are surrounded by peers feel more alone than they did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Right, so we should all throw away our phones. No, 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 I don't think that's the solution at all. One of the things that I hope that we'll see with some of this like super happy and exciting uh, data, right? Are we all feeling great this morning? So glad we came to church. Just an encouraging message. Just want to bless y'all this morning, right? Loneliness is not about surrounding yourself with people. Like that's a start. That's good. That's better than like living in the woods in a cabin all by yourself. But you can have lots of uh, quantity of relationships and still be lonely. You can be married and still be lonely. You can have roommates and still be lonely. Having a bunch of people around us is not the answer. They point to the reality that the quantity of relationships does not seem to matter, but rather the quality of relationships. That it is the type of types of ways that we are relating to people that seems to help us feel connected or disconnected, seems to help us belong or feel lonely. 
If anything, this shows us, like, even on a physiological level, human beings were made to love and to be loved. One of the foundational effects of sin is driving us away from one another, driving us away from God. We see this very early in the story of the scriptures, right? Adam and Eve sin, and they immediately, there's, there's distance in their relationship with each other, and there's distance in relationship with God. They try and hide, and then they have to separate. They have to leave. They have to move further out into the suburbs. I'm just kidding. Sorry. No, not the suburbs. It, right? There's further isolation. There's further distance. There's more self, and there's less us. And the profound, all-encompassing reality of sin, not just like moral bad decisions, but like the fact that it is like the air we breathe, the profound reality of sin is one that drives us away from God and away from one another so that our default is to move away. That it is easier to isolate. It is easier to like go and focus on self instead of live in community. Like if we just leave ourselves alone, this is what tends to happen. But then the opposite is also true. Human beings were made to love and be loved. And so Jesus really actually invites us into lives of deep and rich communion with him and with one another. But this won't just happen on accident. You're not going to like trip and fall into like deep belonging and community. Uh, Our culture isn't set up for it. Uh, I I would argue that our own inner selves aren't set up for it, that we have to actually take some intentional steps for this to happen. But more than this, I I think that Jesus is not just inviting us into deep and rich communion um, because it's like good for us. Hey, take your vitamins. I think he's inviting us into deep and rich communion because it's what we were made for in the first place. That our redemption, our salvation is actually not about going to heaven instead of going to hell, but our redemption and our salvation is actually about restoring communion with God and with other human beings. Right? And if you grew up in evangelical circles, that like at first you're like, but then maybe you're like, wait a second. No, they always told us it's like relationship, not religion, right? That our big problem is that we've been separated from God. And so, of course, the solution to separation is reunification. It's communion. Like, this is the point, that God uh, would be with us and we would be with God and with one another, right? That's the key. Is it's just me and God living in heaven forever and ever and ever. Uh, we're missing something here. So Jesus' saving work is... Right, this is exactly what we talked about a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 8, that, that what it means for us to be conformed to the image of Jesus, who is love, right? God is love. Jesus is God. Jesus is love. If we are being conformed into the image of Jesus, then we are becoming people who give and receive love. So this is one of the core ideas of Jesus, that we're not just spending our time on Sunday evening, um, sorry, <laughs> So this is one of the core ideas of Jesus, and and we've actually been spending our time on Sunday evening like deconstructing some of this and and talking about, wait a second, right, step one, God is three in one, and what does that mean? He's a God of relationship, he's a God of love. What does that mean about us, and what does that mean about what Jesus is inviting us into? Uh, Tonight, we're actually going to be talking about this idea in particular, the church, the community of Jesus here on the earth, and what does that look like? So if, if some of this that I'm about to go through fairly quickly is intriguing or you have questions or want to learn more tonight, five o'clock. You don't have to have gone to any of the other stuff. Drop in and we'll meet for an hour and be done. Um, but today what I want to do is I want to show you what I mean when we look at the life of Jesus. What, what is it that Jesus is inviting us into and what can we participate in here and now in terms of being a community of God? So in Matthew chapter 12, our scripture for this morning, we saw in verses 46 through 50. This was out of the NIV. I like some of what they do with the language here. It says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak with him. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Now, it's important to remember the context of the culture here. This is not a culture of nuclear families. But this is a culture where family was everything. And what family meant was like blood lineage. This was whether you were Roman or whether you were uh, someone from Israel, the idea was your identity is your patriarch. 
The paterfamilias for the Romans, the head of the house is your identity. And so this is a shame and honor culture. So to deny your family or to have your family deny you would have been extreme. It would have led to like real actual social ramifications uh, and real actual economic ramifications. This is part of what makes the prodigal uh, son story such a shocking story in that culture and time. We hear it as like, oh yeah, prodigal son went out to some strip clubs and got drunk and that's kind of wild, but don't we all kind of do that at 17? Maybe we don't all do that, sorry. (laughs) Like, ah, yeah, that's just normal adolescence. But in their culture, they are hearing something extreme. You are denying like the fabric of what makes our culture work. You are denying your faith and your tradition and like you're denying everything. It would be like us denying like, I don't know, capitalism, right? (laughs) Oh, that joke didn't land well here. Okay. (laughs) Right, and so for Jesus to sit there and say in verse 48, who is my mother and who are my brothers is a profound question that is going at the heart of something here. It's not just this nice little parlor trick where Jesus is like, oh yeah, really? Well, watch this. Um, You want to know who my real siblings are? And everyone's like, oh, that's cute. You've got a close relationship with your disciples, neato. It's also not him being like, oh yeah, Mary? Oh yeah, she's a piece of garbage. Let me tell you about Mary, right? So he's not doing anything that we might hear as like toxic or gross, but instead he is reframing uh, what it means to have community. So who are my mother and who are my brothers and sisters is the assumed thing there, verse 49. So pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. So I I don't have a ton of time to to dig into this, but for Jesus to forsake his own family is significant. One that, that possibly could have brought dishonor on them or dishonor on himself. So this is no small thing that he's doing. But then for him to turn and own these disciples in this sort of way, and not just say, hey, do you want to see my, my lesser thans? Do you want to see my followers? Do you want to see my pupils? He elevates them and says, hey, do you, know, do you want to see my equals? Do you want to know who my family is? It's not a family of blood. It's a family that was wrought by God. It's a spiritual family. And this is so much of what Jesus is doing when he calls God Father. Right? It's not to say something about maleness. It's using the patriarchal context to say something about God. No, no, God is over all. God is the one we owe allegiance to. God is the one who's inviting us into life. God is who we should be honoring and living for. It is a, it is a drastic shift in allegiance. And so this redefinition changes our allegiance from one community to another, And this would have been, again, an incredibly challenging idea. And so much of Jesus' redefinition here points us towards what God is doing in terms of sending Jesus and saving us. That it's not just, hey, while I'm here on this earth, here's this new community that I'm forming. Here are these new disciples. But when I leave... I'm going to send my spirit, and when that spirit comes, you're going to experience community like you've never experienced community before. You're going to experience belonging like you've never experienced belonging before. You're going to experience communion like you've never experienced communion before. You are going to love and be loved like you've never loved and been loved before. This is the invitation into Jesus' community. It's not about honor and shame. It's not about blood. It's not about prestige. It's not about social standing. It's not even about heaven and hell. It's about love. It's about belonging. And so this kingdom of God, right? At the beginning of every service, we say, the kingdom of God is breaking in. And this is something that we stole from the Eastern Orthodox Church. So a lot of Eastern Orthodox Church will begin they're, I don't even know what they call them. They're not masses, but something equivalent to like our Sunday mornings, except probably less donuts and more incense. Um, and yeah, a Catholic mass. And at the beginning, the, the patriarch stands up, the priest stands up and says, the kingdom of God is breaking in. 
And what they mean by that is, as we gather, God's presence meets earth. And I get goosebumps just like thinking, like, wow. And we read it and we're like, oh yeah, that's, uh, I don't really understand what that means. That's okay, we're gonna keep reading it anyways. And hopefully we'll like have this built into us of like, oh yeah, when we gather, when we come together, when we meet in our gathering, God is somehow mystically and mysteriously present. The veil between heaven and earth is lifted and heaven and earth somehow begin to mingle here in this place and we get to experience a foretaste of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus gives us this foretaste in this community, here and now in communion, yes, with God, but also with one another. And so we first, uh, two points here. First, we encounter God in and through the community. Now, if you grew up Catholic or like Catholic-esque, you're like, yeah, of course, where else would you encounter God? Like this is Catholicity 101. If you grew up evangelical, you're like, what idolatry is this? Of course, no, I experience community of, uh, I experience God in my prayer closet alone while I'm reading my Bible. Where else would I experience God? But I want to uh, show us, I don't have this on the screen for you. Really simple, black and white, pretty straightforward text from Paul. There are a number of them like this, but 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. If you wrestle with some of this, you're like, ah, I want to know more. This is a great one. Jot this down. Go read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, uh, Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, which by the way was the most jacked up community in most of the New Testament, they were doing some wild stuff and Paul still says this to them. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Right, and, and if we don't understand what that means, for Paul, who was a Pharisee, who was like a, a religious leader of Judaism, the temple was the presence of God on earth. So much of what Jesus says and does is, hey, I'm gonna tear this temple down and rebuild it. And part of what he's talking about is the community. Stephen, in the beginning of Acts, is stoned because he says as much. Hey, the temple's gonna be torn down and a new temple is gonna rise in its place. And that temple is not a building made with stones. It is you and me, friend. And it's not because we're special or unique or more righteous and because we don't drink and smoke and don't do bad things. No, 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 it's because the spirit of the living God has decided to dwell among us. Isn't that great? Like this is really fantastic news. Now, if you grew up, again, evangelical, you probably heard it some type of way like this. Hey, the spirit of the living God dwells in you, and so you better go exercise and take care of your body, right? Was that just me again? Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, There's a book that I love. I would make you all read it if I could. It's called Dwell by Barry D. Jones. It does a lot of great work of unpacking some of what we've been taught um, and repacking it for us in some really helpful ways. One of the things he says is there should be a Texas English translation and that this verse should be translated rightly. This, don't you know that the Spirit of God dwells in y'all? And this occurs over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. The Spirit of God is not dwelling in the individual uh, so much as the Spirit of God is dwelling in the community. And we have individualized what Jesus has made communal and familial. And we've said, no, 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 the spirit of God is for me and the spiritual gifts are for me and all of the stuff is for me. When over and over and over and over again, the New Testament says, no, 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 the spirit of God dwells in y'all. And the gifts are for the church, for the community. God's spirit dwells in y'all's midst. So where do I go to find God? It's not the Bible. It's not the mountains or the beach, it's the community. Not because the community is special, not because the community knows something that everybody else doesn't know, not because the community is morally more righteous than everybody else, but because Jesus has decided that's where I will be. I choose to set up camp among this broken, crooked people and work redemption through them. Which brings us to the second part. We experience God's redemption in and through community. 
So that the, the, the way that we actually are conformed into the image of God, the way that we actually can experience the grace of God, the way that we can actually begin to live into this love, receiving it and giving it, is in the community. So much of our series has been about how you personally can encounter God. And yes, absolutely, we are rightly, we ought to rightly be like personally praying and personally reading and personally taking responsibility for our own faith. But the goal can never be to only do that in isolation. That our individual prayer lives are meant to be done in community and we ebb and flow into individual personal spirituality and communal spirituality and they're meant to serve one another. That as I gather in the community, my prayer personally, my experience with God personally is more rich and more vivid and more real and as that happens, I come back and I have more to offer to the community, more grace and love and forgiveness and joy and delight and even prayer. So redemption happens in and through community. One famous Pauline scholar that I quote as ad nauseum, uh, Douglas Campbell, you know him, you love him. He says it this way, communion with one another offers a constant, gentle pressure toward the appropriate modes of relating. Right, that's just a fancy way of saying, hey, you can't love unless you're in community with other people. Being in the, in the community of the church helps you learn how to love. And anyone who has like a roommate or a sibling or a spouse knows it's really easy to love someone from far away and then you live with them and you're like, oh my gosh, you are like, maybe not the worst, but you're certainly not whatever I thought you were and imagined you being and you're like hard sometimes. And that's not like their fault, right? You're not like, why can't you just change, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is on you, right? No, 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 that's, it's bringing up something in us. And this is where redemption actually happens. As we choose to give grace to imperfect people, as we choose to give them more than they deserve, rather than living in some sort of reciprocity of, well, you've done this for me, so I'll do this for you, this tit-for-tat relationship. I choose to give you better than you deserve. And you choose to give me better than you deserve. He goes on to say, we are both, right, the two parties in the community, we are both invited and summoned to a personhood that loves properly. Have you ever thought about this? So much of the scriptures is simply like, hey, here's how to love each other. And then the rest of it is pretty much like, hey, here's how to love God. And we've taken it and turned it into like rules, right? Ah, That's next week's sermon. Author Carolyn Lacey says it this way. Jesus offers grace to us, yes, but he also offers grace to others through us. He promises that living water will flow from within us to others. That is, he will extend his welcome and embrace to others through us. This is the best motivation for offering generous hospitality. Generosity is not just something we are called to do, an item to tick off of our spiritual checklist. It is a significant way in which God works in our lives to bring life to others. Community is where we learn to put up with one another, as Paul says it in Galatians, to bear with one another. Right, and I realize that this can be incredibly challenging for us because for a number of us, uh, whenever we hit like, well, I don't like you and you don't like me, or we get in a disagreement or so, like something happens where it's not like honeymoon anymore, and we've somehow implicitly or maybe explicitly been taught, well, then I guess that means that we're just don't belong together and we have to like change churches or change hubs or change relationships or change friend groups or whatever. When Jesus is inviting us to let go and to love, uh, there's a whole sidebar here about abuse and toxic relationships and like some really obvious things that Uh, shouldn't need to be said, but absolutely need to be said. If you're in any sort of community, church, relationship, where you are being harmed, get out. Get out. I don't care what anyone else told you from a pulpit or from the Bible. Like, if, if you are being harmed by someone, Jesus does not want you to sit there and be harmed for the sake of the good news of Jesus. 
But aside from that sidebar, relationships are hard because we're broken. And our messiness and our brokenness spills out onto other messy and broken peoples and conflict inevitably, inevitably ensues. So how do we deal with conflict? We deal with it the way that Jesus taught us to. With grace. With forgiveness. With gentleness. We treat each other in ways that are better than we deserve. Not because we've earned it. Not because they deserve it. We treat others the way that Jesus treats us and we live as a people in the shadow of a crucified God. A God who says, now take up your cross and come imitate me. Love like I love. Live like I live. Okay. Um, So painted a hopefully robust idea of community, okay? Hey, community is important. You should have it. It's also really hard, but the good news is it's like really redemptive and this isn't like the type of hard that's like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get like do it better next time. Like that's not what this is. This is actually a real invitation into grace and to letting go instead of like controlling, which can be hard, but in like a very different way, right? And so I wanna like really quickly get sort of practical here. And there's a lot that we could unpack here because it's about relationships and human beings and there's just a ton. We'll do a whole series on this in the fall um, because as I'm doing this, I'm like, how do I not let this be a five-hour sermon um, for y'all's sakes and generosity and love towards y'all, right? So like a couple of like real proactive steps. These are not all the steps. So hear me saying that. This is not the only thing you ever need to do. But these are some ones that I felt were important for us to hear. A couple of obstacles that we all face to uh, community, right, and use whatever word you want, deep relationships, deep friendships, uh, meaningful relationships, we can interchange those. There's a lot of, unfortunately, because of some of the damage and trauma that a lot of us have been through, any given word can trigger a number of negative responses here. But the first obstacle is the idealization of community. So Bonhoeffer writes this book called Life Together. It's fantastic. It's like super weirdly practical. Like when you read it, you're expecting this like rich theology where Bonhoeffer's talking about this stuff. And and no, he's like, no, you're going to get up at this time and you're going to read this and then you're going to talk about it. You're like, whoa, this is not as practical as I was expecting. This is great. Sorry, the opposite of that. Um, So read it. It's great. This is his reflections on like, hey, here's what we did as we ran a a seminary, an illegal seminary during the Nazi regime. Here's how we trained pastors to live life together. And the whole purpose was, hey, we're not just going to go and say, hey, you should all believe this about God. I want you to experience what life together can be like so that you can then go live life together with your people. All that to say, in there, Bonhoeffer talks about there is nothing more destructive to community than idealizing it. Right? We can hear, oh, community is like the expression of the kingdom of God on earth. And then what we can do is we can like try to have real deep and meaningful relationships with other people where we hurl all these unreasonable expectations and idealized fantasies about what that's going to look like on them. So we expect our church to look like this, or our hub to look like this, or our friend group to look like this, or my relationship with my spouse to look like this, or my relationship with my roommate to look like this. And then when it doesn't pan out because like, you know, they're humans and we're humans and we then judge them and criticize them or judge ourselves and like shame ourselves over like, whoa, this is broken and right. And we never actually get to experience the redemption that comes from real community. Uh, he, he does like a lot. Like he, I, there was, I was the highlights I have, y'all. I was like, how do I not quote this to them? Go read it. It's fantastic. Having any sort of idealistic dream or expectation of what community is going to be will ensure that you never actually have it. It poisons the well. And no community that you're ever part of is ever good enough, right? So that's obstacle one, this idealization. Obstacle two is exclusion, right? So it's very similar to the first obstacle. We will unintentionally exclude people as we curate our friend group, 
one of the most powerful communities that I've had in my life was like, so back in my story, I was crazy and weird and wild as like an insecure teenager and did some silly stuff and then came back to church at the age of 21. And when I came back to church, I joined this small group that was going through a book study of the purpose-driven life. I mean, it was deep stuff, y'all. We were, (laughs) um, and this group of people consisted of, I seven or eight people, none of them were below the age of 55. And this very quickly became my friend, friend group. Like week in and week out, I was myth, uh, hanging out with these older people, praying with them, talking about faith with them, and like had no other friends outside of that. I'm not saying that was healthy. I'm just saying like that was incredibly transformative and I would have never willingly chosen them. You guys seem like great people. Let's hang out together, Right? Because I had nothing and they were there, I ended up in the group and it actually was enriching and completely life-changing for my soul. We need each other. We have to be careful about exclusion. We want to control the types of people we're in community with. We want people like us and really what we want is people that we like. If I can be in community with people that I like, then I will get dot, 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 right? because those tend to be people that are easier for us to love. And yet there is a rich invitation of Jesus as he has a tax collector and a zealot who, if you don't know, are like, hey, I'm gonna murder the tax collector. And he says, hey, y'all wanna be best friends? (laughs) Or at least invites them into, hey, you wanna join my community of love? Do you think they got along? you think they liked each other? Like, man, I know I want to murder you, but man, you tell the best puns. Like, I don't know. I don't know what the the conversations over the fire were like. Or Mary. You got a bunch of dudes hanging around in a patriarchal society, and then there's just like these women that are like, but this is uncomfortable, and they're around our community, and what do we do with that? This is inappropriate, right? If we curate our communities, we can miss out on a lot of the redemption that Jesus has to offer us. And the last one is probably the biggest one, and um, I want to be mindful of y'all's time, but it's consumerism. Related to the first two, right, can we all acknowledge that we live in a culture where freedom of choice means that everything exists to potentially enhance your life? which is like, I'm not like condemning that. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Everything from like, what do I want to eat today has the potential. Do I want something that's really yummy or do I want something that's really healthy? Like, how do I want to enhance my life? But what it has done, and this is is not a judgment on, well, why can't y'all get it right? I've got it all figured out. No, no, this is like, it's the water we swim in. Nothing we can do about it. But one of the ways that it has formed us, it has placed us at the center of the world. And our freedom of choice has allowed us and somehow formed us into consumers. So we see everything from our individual centric lens asking, how is this going to get me to wherever or whatever I want? And if you think about like, let's just go back, I don't know, a hundred years, like you didn't have a choice of which church you went to. You went to the church that was like the center of the city and that was it. And that determined not just what church you went to, but whether you were like Catholic or Protestant, like that was it. Those are your friends group. Like you go back uh, 200 years ago, like who are you marrying? I don't know, the girl that lives next door, she's the only one that exists in the city. So I guess, <laughs> or even worse, like whoever my mom tells me to, I, I right? Right, so like I'm not saying, hey, this is your fault. You need to stop being consumers. Uh, it's simply being aware of it and how this shapes us and forms us and how it shapes and forms our idea of what community in Jesus can be like. And so a couple of uh, sub points here. Right, so much of our busyness leads to our isolation and so much of this busyness is, our, is like actually our pursuit of more stuff. I've got to get this degree so that I can make this amount of money so that I can get this type of house in this type of neighborhood or send my kids to this type of school, right? And and like some of that is, that's the world you live in. Those are choices you have to make, right? I'm not poo-pooing that. But having some self-reflection and asking 50 years from now, where do I want to be and what are the decisions I need to make to get there is like a helpful exercise. There's some of that that, 
is just gonna happen. It's the nature of the world you live in. But some of that is worth exploring. Probably more diabolical here. Uh, sorry, one, one small point here on that, the busyness. Part of what this means is that we live in a world where relationships are temporary, and that's not ideal. I would love to say that everyone who goes to Redemption Church is going to go to Redemption Church forever and ever and ever, but now I would be idealizing community, and that's not fair to y'all. That you uh, have the right to move. You have the right to take new jobs. You have the right to, like, leave your residencies and go get a job somewhere. Like those are things that are going to happen. And so one of the, one of the words that I explored that I really liked when talking about community, instead of this vision of like this long time eternal relationship that we're going to have with one another is more a picture of fellowship and not fellowship like Baptist, like potluck fellowship, but fellowship like Lord of the Rings fellowship, where a group of people are temporarily coming alongside one another to achieve the common goal of worshiping Jesus and being conformed into his image. And that for time, we will travel together, and then when God calls us to go elsewhere, we will, and that can be a beautiful and good and rich thing, because we will find another community and another fellowship in the next chapter of our lives. Uh, Side note, over. Okay. Obstacle number two under consumerism, uh, point three B. (laughs) So part of like this, just what flows out of our hearts in this consumeristic way that we see the world is the commodification of people. So Bonhoeffer talks about this, and the phrase that he uses is human love versus divine love. But this is the idea that that this is love that's directed towards the other person because of what it gives me. So I love you because you make me feel good about myself. And the second you stop making me feel good about myself is the second I stop loving you. Boom. I feel like there's like a whole shell that just broke open about how we date and marry and have roommates and other sorts of relationships. He goes on to say that selfish love is not actually really love, but it's the commodification of the person. It's love that says, I love you because of what you give me. I'm the consumer. You're the product. I will be in a relationship with you as long as it serves me. And this is where our loves are disordered the most, right? Uh, I gave you the example of marriage. And we see this all over. over. Let's let's just look at marriage for just a second. Marriage is hard because it's two human beings who are living in close relationship and proximity to one another for like ever until death do us part, ideally. And, And one of the realities of marriage is that most of us, probably all of us, go into marriage with some sort of idealized expectation of what our spouse is and what our spouse is going to do for us. And then when they don't, because they won't, we all of a sudden say, well, you're broken and we have to whatever, right? This is uh, a profound example of one of the things that Bonhoeffer is talking about here. One of the things that Jesus is doing for us is he's changing the way that we love. Shifting our focus from ourselves to the other, right? And, and again, all the caveats apply, please. This is, uh, we're making some broad sweeping statements. And I want to make sure that we understand, like, there are real boundaries that need to be made. We've done a whole thing on divorce. We'll do one again. Like, that does not mean you should never get divorced for any reason at all. Um, okay. Uh, Sorry, one last side note here. (laughs) I think this also explains the megachurch. Right, and we say we don't want it. Oh, megachurch, ah, they're terrible, megachurches. And yet everyone goes to them for a reason. I don't want to like demonize all the megachurches in the world because there's probably a lot of great ones. Um, but part of the problem with megachurches is we're going to give the people what they want because if we don't, they won't show up anymore. <laughs> and then you have a bunch of people who are there for them, uh, right? Uh, painting with really broad brushes here. I grew up in megachurches, so this isn't condemnation on anyone. 
And then we look at the monster that they contend to become and we want to go, wow, what happened here? Human love often takes the form of enmeshment or codependency. When we look to others, whether that's a church, a spouse, a roommate, a pastor, whoever, when we look to others to satisfy our deepest needs, especially to heal our wounds, and then when they don't, we blame them for it or we judge them for it. And we go, why aren't you Jesus? Right? Uh, Similarly, detachment is when we say, nope, there is no God there. There can never be any God there. I will go and live uh, a detached life and experience God all on my own. I don't need the church. I don't need to show up on Sunday mornings. I don't need to go to small groups. And so, Similarly, community can very quickly become a thing that can be consumed, right? And we have to be aware of this because like I'm telling you, this is the majority of our just default. Super encouraging message, Brandon. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. So for genuine spiritual connection, participation in both the community's spiritual life and one's own personal spiritual life are essential. We're gonna talk more about this in the fall, but uh, last two things and then I will wrap this up. You're lucky this wasn't five hours. It was just closer to one. So <laughs> I told Gabby, I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, so my sermons are normally like 1,700 to 1,800 words. And this one was like 3,200 words. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> um, so you're welcome. All right, so ways to overcome the obstacles. There are like 100 of them. I want to give you two really simple and hopefully approachable ones. And then we will wrap this up. Number one is acceptance. Two ways that we can practice acceptance. Grace which is giving uh, other people better than what they deserve, receiving something better than what you deserve, and seeing everything and everyone through the lens of a crucified God. A God who has willingly given himself for them and for you and wholeheartedly embraced and forgiven them. Bonhoeffer does this great job of talking about how when we can understand our own place in light of the cross, then we can realize how easy it can be to love other sinners who are just like us. So grace and then inclusion. Living intentional, invitational lives with no judgment or expectation on the other, but just seeing them the way that God sees them. Imperfect people in the image of God, whom Christ deeply loved and is working in and transforming. And we let other human beings be themselves. We delight in them. So acceptance was number one. Number two is ownership. There's a number of different words that we can use here. None of them are like super fun. <laughs> But rather than seeing ourselves as consumers of spiritual communities, I think Jesus is inviting us to see ourselves as co-creators. Like there is real invitation to participate and to create. And for Redemption Church to be a place of grace and love is for the people of Redemption Church to be people of grace and love. And so we come alongside one another and we work towards redemption, towards building something good and beautiful. Now, the second part of this ownership is vulnerability. And this takes time, and I know that a lot of you have been through some stuff that make this tricky, and so like, be patient here. There is zero expectation that you show up to a hub group or to coffee with someone or to dinner with someone and say, hey, here's everything about my life and my soul and my deepest, darkest wounds. But if we always hide, we will always be running from redemption. Not the place, like the work that God is trying to do in us here and now. This is just a fancy way of saying confession. You don't need to confess to everyone, right? We're not gonna have a time now, open mic. Everyone, come and tell everyone like your deepest, darkest. In fact, I recommend not confessing to everyone. 
Everyone in your hub group doesn't need to know your business, but at least one person does, maybe two. And if we're, one, if we're gonna have acceptance, we have to have vulnerability, and if we're gonna have vulnerability, we have to have acceptance. The two go hand in hand. And so um, I'll leave us with this quote on confession. Uh, Bonhoeffer, again, right? In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin, um, and Brene Brown would add shame, demands to have a human being by themselves. It wants to take him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive sin's effect can be over them. And the more deeply they become involved in the sin. And the more disastrous their isolation is. Sin wants to be anonymous. Will we be willing at some point, right? If you're new here, welcome to Redemption Church. There is zero expectation to not go and share your deepest, darkest stuff with people. But do we have the type of relationship where we can really and genuinely open up and know that that person is not gonna change their opinion about us? Is gonna be willing to forgive us even if what we're sharing is like harmful to them? is going to give us the grace that Jesus invites us to give each other. Right? That's the question. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.